Well, my name is Rob Michael, and I am a video game programmer. Well, what were you doing before you started doing video game programming? I spent 27 years in the United States Navy. That's a long time. It is a long time. So this is my second career. I, uh, I got to live out my <clears throat> first dream of serving my country and flying jets off of aircraft carriers. And that's what you always wanted to do before. Yeah, yeah, just that's, fly jets. I wanted to fly. I wanted to. I I wanted to be a bombardier. I wanted to fly low, fast, and mean, and blow bad people up. <laughs> but the jet I wanted to fly was going away just as I got in the A6, mm. and so I ended up in its uh, cousin, the EA6, and I jammed radars. You jammed radars for a living. Yeah, for a number of years, uh, managed flight operations on an aircraft carrier. Oh, well. It, guys up in the tower, uh -huh. was a mini boss, and did city management for about the last eight years of, okay. of my career. City but management of wherever you were? Bases, yeah. The bases, okay. Yeah, so I was in Meridian, Mississippi. I spent some time back in Norfolk, kind of like a mid-level headquarters. We had 14, uh, 20, 20 bases that worked for us. Spent a little bit of time up at a base in New York, temporarily serving as the commanding officer up there, kind of like the mayor of that little town. Uh -huh. And then the last couple of years we're here in, in Corpus Christi, which <clears throat> I'm uh, from Texas, not originally, but this is, this is where I grew up most of my life. My wife's from Texas and we wanted to get back home. So uh, I was able to get a job here in Corpus Christi. Uh, eventually I wanted to settle up in the hill country. Uh -huh. uh, but I've got a daughter who's a junior in high school right now, so we're here for the next couple of years. Oh, you're going to wait for them? Yeah. What's the gap between your, there are, the one that's in high school and the one that's like grab before that? Uh, she, my, the next eldest is in eighth grade. Oh, okay. And then I've got one in, just started sixth, so she just started middle school, and i got another one in second. So, yeah, they're, they're roughly three-ish years apart, give or take. How's, how's your... Because you've been here for what, two years now? Three. Three? Yeah, it's hard to believe. I've been here since 2019. Your kids are liking it down here? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, we got family, my wife's family up in, in around the San Antonio area. So, you know, it's yeah. a couple, three hours to, to travel up there to go see them. That's not to, too bad. To do stuff. So, yeah, it's not too bad. And, and then my immediate family's in the Houston area, mm. northwest Houston. So we don't travel there as often. We just got back from Austin today, actually. Yeah. The drive really isn't that bad. After a while, you just, especially Texas, right? Because you can go 12 hours without crossing state lines. Yeah, exactly. It's huge. So what, um, so what are you doing now? So you left the Navy, mm -hmm. and now you're doing computer game programming, which was something that you already knew how to do before. Is yeah, so I, while I was in the Navy, I went to graduate school in Monterey, California, the Naval mm -hmm. Postgraduate School, and I went there originally for a degree in modeling virtual environments and simulation, or MOVES. Okay. And when I was there, I learned that I could finish up my degree in computer science that I didn't finish as an undergrad. I was trying to do two degrees, not, a, not officially, but <clears throat> kind of unofficially. I started as an aerospace engineering um, major because, you know, I thought building airplanes is a lot like flying airplanes. Mm. It's not. I bet. Two <laughs> different sciences. Yeah. And so my mom was was like, why don't you take get a graduate degree in computer science? You, you 
are, are good at that sort of stuff. So I started taking computer science classes along with my arrow. And looking back, I probably just should have done computer science the whole way, mm. quite frankly. Uh, I've done nothing with my aerospace, but I, I do get to say that I'm a rocket scientist. You know, <laughs> I have that going for me. That's no, that's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool uh, thing to put on like a nameplate, right? Yeah, Rob Michael, rocket, rocket scientist, scientist. <laughs> slash video game programmer. <laughs> that's <developer>. right. <laughs> yeah. So I, I graduated from Monterey in 2003, mm. uh, and so tr tr trying to figure out how I was going to make this happen, leaving the Navy when I. It'd been nearly 20 years since I'd done any programming was kind of daunting. I didn't know if I could do it, quite frankly. But I had a number of mentors along the way. Uh, some were saying, hey, go into this field of game programming more at the management level. And some people were like, guess what? We got lots of people that apply for management positions, but guess what none of them can do? Write code. Uh. You can. You just haven't done it in a while. So you just need to brush up, and that I did. At least enough that I could you know, get through interviews and coding tests and stuff like that. Uh, you might say fake it till you make it, but <clears throat> um, well enough. You know, and, and first principles you know, still apply. Okay, maybe I couldn't remember the syntax of how to write certain code because it's been a while, but the basic principles of how to turn ideas into reality through code doesn't change. So what, let's just say somebody that went to school like you did and got all that coding uh, education versus somebody that, let's just say from a young age, 15 years old or whatever, started learning code, let's say now, about 20 years from now, just kept going as a hobby. Would you say that there would be a major difference between what you can do now learning the internet with coding Versus where you can learn in school, or you think that you still prefer if you if somebody would actually go, like for example, somebody wanted to use like, hey, I never went to school for coding, but look at what I've done. Yeah, I do all these things. Yeah. Versus somebody like, hey, I went to school for coding. Look at what I've done, and they do the exact same thing. Right. How do you differentiate between like who's better suited? Well, what I what I have learned in this journey is that people want to know, okay, what have you done? Give me examples of, of your work. What games mm -hmm. have you worked on? Can you show me, you know, if you're doing gameplay, do you have any clips of the game where it shows the things that you put together? You know, it's, you know, if you're an artist or an animator, that's easy. It's all visual, right? right. <clears throat> you can show that. If you do gameplay or artificial intelligence, sounds probably not that bad because it's easy to listen to the, you know, the, the sound of the, of the game. And... If you can demonstrate that you have the skills, that's what's really important. Although, you know, when I look at when I looked at job descriptions, you know, they're looking for: Do you have a degree? Do you have a degree? Yes, right. I, I do have a degree. Two of them, matter of fact. And but I had no experience, so maybe someone who's been doing it, you know, as a hobby, they're gonna they're gonna have more applicable skills. Than certainly me who that's the fine line right versus experience versus yeah like education like how where does that blend in like yeah. what, what makes you qualified because a lot of people want to hire people with like well what's what's your experience well I just graduated I don't have any right and I you know yeah. I've I've been working with a couple of guys that that literally came out of school I think they had internships like I did which certainly helps because then you get to see the practical application of the things that you're learning in school. You know, and when I went through, 
uh, both undergrad and graduate, we didn't have things like Unity and Unreal Engine, which these kids are using in school these days. Yeah. So they, they've already got a leg up on somebody like me, and I'm having to learn it on my own. I About a week before I started my job, I started taking courses on Udemy in Unreal Engine. So was that like a complete foreign language? Because if you talk about the most basic form of coding, it's just lines versus the Unreal Engine. When you look at it, it's just like mind-blowing as far as the graphics concerned. Like how much did you have to invest in that? As far as like beefing up your machine, your computer, yeah. like how much of that did you have to do before you even was like, okay, I got to do this before I do this. Yeah. No, I mean, I already had a pretty good computer. I've got a, a, a Razer Blade Pro uh -huh. 2019. I did end up doubling the RAM at some point just because all the work I'm doing both in the Unreal Engine and in Visual Studio writing the actual C++ code. But Unreal's got two ways to program. They've got no kidding, C++ code. And it's still, it's all based on mm -hmm. standard C++. And then they have their own library of functionality that you learned how to do, uh, either by reading the source code itself, reading the documentation. You spend a lot of time. Your Google foo better be pretty darn good because mm. you're always looking. Uh, if you don't ha know how to do something and you haven't learned it in a course or you didn't learn it in school, you spend a lot of time on either the Unreal forums or you'll find stuff on um, uh, Reddit or Stack Exchange or Stack Overflow. There's a couple of Discord channels like Unreal Slackers, great places all to get answers. And, and you got to know how to... Unreal Slackers? Unreal Slackers, yeah. <laughs> That's a very active community. Uh, and nobody's it, slacking over no, there. No, <laughs> nobody's slacking there. And so it, th th those are really great sources especially when I've had some really challenging problems to solve yeah. where I, I just couldn't find an answer. And even though I'm looking through code, source code, and I'm searching forums, and I'm just trying to find somebody who's done this before, huh. you, you don't always find an answer. Um, in fact, I just implemented something uh, Friday after talking to one of our senior engineers who while only had a few months of Unreal experience, had years of programming experience. And after I was able to explain the problem to him, he didn't have a direct solution, but our, our brainstorming together came up with a solution. I'm like, ah, why didn't I think of that before? And I, I put it together and voila, it worked like a champ. So some And this is all, you're doing all this remotely, right? I am, yep. So I work from home here in Corpus Christi. My machine sits in Austin. My client is, I think I got clients in like France and maybe Norway and uh, Sure. So yeah, it's a completely international gig. Uh, my parent, my, our, our small studio started out as Marching Cube. We've now been absorbed into GameSim. We're all part of Keyword Studios, which is a global conglomerate of 70 plus studios, 10,000 wow. employees, headquartered in Dublin, Ireland. Cool. And only about 700 employees out of that 10,000 work in the States. Oh, nice. That's pretty yeah. cool. So GameSim's in Orlando. Like I said, our client is, is largely overseas. Um, but going back to your original question of you know, sort of the difference, Unreal has a visual scripting engine called Blueprints, which you don't have in Unity, which is the other uh, largely commercial 
uh, game engine. So it's like you kind of see it form as your code sort of yeah, thing? Yeah, so you may have a function that's in C++. It's a, it's a block, and it may have these little circular pins, and you literally drag pin to, to, from block to block to form the logic. I mean, the logic still is all the same. You, but having to write, let's say you're trying to transfer something from Blueprint to C++ code, there's a certain amount of overhead that comes with running things in, in Blueprint. And while it's easier for, particularly someone who's not code-oriented, like our animators, it's easier for them to understand the logic in Blueprint than to sit there and look at code. code. I can do both. And I started out learning Unreal, actually, in the Blueprint's uh, mode of coding. And then I took another course that was uh, about making games in C++. And now I can kind of jump back and forth between the two. So how long would you say it took you to kind of be proficient enough? Like how long was a course? So the first course I finished sometime in January. I took a, I took a really short course on user interface because we needed somebody to do UI. And I'm like, sure, I've done UI stuff before. I remember you telling me about that. And, and then I, so I finished the first course uh, that I started like early December, finished mid to late January. And then the second one just kind of lingered. I just finished it literally like July. Uh. And now I'm doing a multiplayer one, which is, I, so I'm learning things in C++ that I've known how to do in Blueprints. Sure. And so it's good to see how I, I can go back, because I, 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 I reference both my work code and other projects that I've done in my courses, and I'll go back and I'll be like, okay, how did I do that before? Hmm. I'll look at the logic, figure out where the functions come from, go look at the source code, read through the source code, figure out how they're doing it differently there, and get a sense for, okay, I can do this both ways. I can do it either in code or I can do it in the blueprint version of coding. And so, and that's what's neat, what I'm learning right now in C++ is the, the multiplayer side of stuff about I'm hosting a game, and I'm doing it on Steam with lobbies, and people are going to join it. And how do you do all? How do you make all that uh, work? And so that's the latest course that I'm working on, plus another one on something called gameplay abilities uh, that Unreal has, which is a neat way of kind of packaging up something. Like I'm going to do a, a melee attack, a punch, a sword uh -huh. swing, whatever, and I can in, kind of encapsulate it package it all into this one series of files and function calls that says, okay, I'm gonna start this and it's gonna give me the ability to do certain things and maybe it's a, a game that where you can lose health or you might it might be endurance-based like a Souls-like or it might have mana for like magic and other stuff like that. It might have costs, your attacks might have cooldowns um, and it has a neat way of, of kind of keeping things from intermingling that you don't get otherwise. So is, this, is it kind of like um, a source for you to somewhat copy and paste? Or no, is that? Yeah, I, I, and, and I like I said, I refer back to my work, whether it's uh, whether I'm doing something at work and I go and look back at one of my projects I've done in through one of my Udemy courses, or vice versa. In fact, when I was doing a lot of the multiplayer, I would go back to my remote machine, I'd look at the stuff that I wrote, or kind of copied off a, another project and say, okay, well, how did I do this? And are we doing something very similar? Yes. 
okay? And just trying to understand the logic, go find the source code that was behind the, the visual script and figure out how I can incorporate that into the work that I was doing in the, in the, pro, in the course. It was really uh, neat and satisfying. And now that I can kind of, now I kind of speak two unreal languages as it were. I, th I guess the thing that was in the back of my mind is like, cause sometimes the code, you know, if one little thing is off and you just keep, you know, escalating that up the, the, the chain or I guess the ladder, and I guess those problems can keep increasing because of that one little mistake on that little beginning part. Mm -hmm. So as a coder, like how do you recognize that something is wrong? And how do you even begin to like diagnose the problem? So we play test, uh, in, uh, internally we have a play test once a week and then we play test with our, our client. And it's a lot of just show and tell. That's what it boils down to here. Look at the things that I've done. Every day when we do work, we're posting updates on Slack. They're going in, they're grabbing the code from the same, um, uh, grab it out of the cloud to help people understand sure. it. It's on a server somewhere. And they play around with it. And we package all our work up into a plugin and then they can drop that in ah. into another game. And they test it out themselves and they say, okay, uh, this isn't quite working the way I want it to. I want you know this to work a little bit differently. So you're always identifying things that isn't working the way you envisioned it working. Because it, in the end, it's all about turning ideas into some sort of logical progression of steps. Sure. Branches, sequences. If I do this, then I do that. But if I, if I don't do this, then I do... Yeah, so it's, it's something like that. And if I push this button, click this, this mouse, I hit this keyboard key, gamepad button, whatever, what is, mm. what is it that I'm going to do? And, and, you know, we're a small team and the project is progressing pretty fast. So it's not like we spend a lot of time just sitting down and thinking through and, and handwriting out our designs. It's all up in here and you're doing it on the fly. Now, if it's more complex, yeah, you're, you're writing things out. You're writing maybe a flow chart out. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're having to, to write the math equations out for what it is that you're trying to do just so you can be clear about it. Sure. Have like a down. visual reference of the... May, oh yeah, so so the client gives us these uh, diagrams of say a functionality they want to have happen. Like so, this is parkour. Like we're gonna vault, we're gonna climb up poles, we're gonna do parkour sliding, um, we're gonna have the ability to push somebody, um, trip them up with a kick, whatever. Sure. <clears throat> and they'll give us these little diagrams with the effects, the behaviors they want to see, and then we go and take those behaviors and make them into reality through code and then we test it out and it's and we're doing we're doing an animation based movement system so unreal has a lot of physics based in it and that's how we started out because uh, we were building off a code base that my former boss had uh, developed and had shared freely to the client but at some point they're like, we don't want to do physics based, we want to do animation based. And so we, and they didn't have animators. So I was grabbing free animations off Adobe's Mixamo site and, mm. and converting them over to work within. So a, Adobe has a, like, um, like a source that you can kind of pull off? Yeah, of? They, they've got a, a site where you can get a lot of free animations. And so the trick, there was, there was a, a learning process to figure out how to get those working correctly in Unreal. And, and eventually I cracked that and got them working. 
And then eventually the client came in with their own model and then we had to convert it over to work with their model. And then they've now they've got animators that are developing mm -hmm. animations to replace these placeholders. Because we just needed something to be a visual representation like, sure. okay, yeah, it looks like it's working. It's a little ugly right now, but we don't care. We just know that when I press the space bar and I'm pushing forward and I'm next to this object that it does something. All right, as long as the desired effect is taking place. Yeah, you're yeah. getting the behavior that you want. It just doesn't look real pretty. Right. And so, um, yeah, it's starting to come into its own now that we've got better and better fidelity with the animations that they're producing to start making this game come, come to life the way they want it to be. One thing that I see a lot, um, came out a lot last year, and I think whenever we, whenever we were, um, you know, uh, in the same shared space, yeah, uh, I was talking to you about some of the um, criticism that some company was going through mm -hmm. um, with like workplace, not only abuse, but overworking employees. Because mm -hmm. when you come, let's just say a triple A, a triple, triple A game, you know, yeah. at the crunch time is mm -hmm. it's everything has deadlines, right? Yep. And if you don't meet those deadlines, now you as the employee, you're gonna have to say maybe over hours, maybe even sometimes sleep mm -hmm. in the office, so you can be right there in the mm -hmm. morning when you wake up. So how much is that is the fault of the the people that are setting the deadlines, or the or is it maybe a combination of the deadline versus how much is being asked to be done or how hard it is, like how does that even, like when you get a project and you're looking at the deadline, mm -hmm. can you already see like, oh man, this is gonna be like crunch time right about here? Yeah. Like how does that all work? Well, when we when the client first pitched switching over from physics-based, which we've been working a lot on, we threw a bunch of stuff out over to animation-based. I was like, and when they talked about when they thought we'd have this done, I was like, I don't, don't know if we can do this. I, I mean, I was brutally honest. That's kind of how I was raised and how the Navy trained yeah. me to, to be. And, you know, maybe there were people who thought I was a little too honest, but that's, that's okay. <laughs> uh, they, they can take the honesty, then find somebody who can. It, but, you know, we grew into it. And we're, I guess we're fortunate in the fact that there's no hard deadline right now. They keep extending our contract. They, they say, you know, hey, we've got X number of months left. But to your point. Because it also has to do with budget too, right? Certainly. And of course, it's a contract. So they're paying for our services. Uh, it's not coming out of our budget so much. Uh, I mean, the, the, the amount that the client's paying for our services is, is helping pay our salaries and, you know, whatnot. But <laughs> Back to your point on you're working at a, at a studio mm -hmm. pr producing a AAA game, all of that can be there. So during my internship, I worked on Call of Duty Warzone, and yeah, we had deadlines. And so... And is this something you can talk about now? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, when I came in, uh, I, I was there for about the last four months of the Warzone Pacific release, and Warzone's an immense beast. I mean, there's... 4,000 oh, yeah. plus employees in like nine or 10 studios working on this thing. With, I mean, it's a massive seller. It is a massive seller. It's a billion dollar a year enterprise. 
And there's daily testing going on. I mean, not only with the developers who are play testing it, but the, the army of folks in, in quality assurance. And I think the, the QA folks do feel sort of the brunt of that pressure. Um, I, I think a lot of QA folks, they come into the business and they're not necessarily programmers or artists, but they're figuring out how to way to, to get into the industry. And that's great. Um, so they're probably not getting as paid as much as say a mid-level uh, engineer yeah. or animator or whatnot. And so that can kind of, uh, that can create a lot of pressure uh, for them. And it, I guess it, it could for others as well. Um, it, it depends on if the experience has, has kind of ruined it for you, but whether it's you know we're, it's crunch and we gotta we gotta get this uh, thing done, um, but at the same time you also you and the and the folks who manage the development, the producers, have to figure out how to prioritize. Right. There's just some things because there's a deadline. There's just some things that aren't going to get done by release. Yeah, and you got to be able to delegate too, right? Or yeah. ask for help. Exactly. Um, and and some things we just know aren't going to be working perfectly, especially something. That's as complex as Warzone. Right. I mean, it's thousands and thousands of lines of code. Sometimes you even see these publishers and developers release some of these games that are not even 100%. Like they iron out the kinks as the release is going. Like right. And as a gamer, you kind of grumble about that, right? right? Like, oh, you're just releasing your beta, your program. It's basically a beta to us, sure. uh, to us gamers to, to help you fix your bugs. And, you know, that's a decision the company has to make. Um, and it could be financial. It could be, hey, I want to make sure that I beat my competitor That's to the market too, with right? this product, and it may not be yep. 100%, it may be 95%, but we're going to take it. because That gets us the edge financially, too. That, exactly, because that it's a revenue producer, right? Um, that they want to get that out there. And, and so every company is going to do that differently. I mean, you've seen it run the gamut from companies that are just, um, they slide the deadline, they slide the deadline, they make an announcement release, and then it's like two years later before the game finally comes out. And they decide that, well, hey, it just wasn't ready for prime time. Mm. And, and, and so each company has got to make that decision on how they want to skin that cat, so to speak. One uh, 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 recent... Um Example of that is the Harry Potter Hogwarts game that's coming out. It was supposed to come out mm -hmm. sometime earlier this year, and then it got pushed back to, I don't remember exactly if it was September or October, but then mm -hmm. it got pushed back again, mm -hmm. and now it's not till February, and then they mm -hmm. released a statement. It's like, look, you want to release the best game we can possibly can, yada, mm -hmm. yada. So I guess that's them figuring out, you know, this game is not quite ready to release yeah. yet. Yeah, and then you take uh, Cyberpunk. Was that Cyberpunk twenty seven? Yeah, 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 took quite a rap, right? Yeah, because and I've never played it, but that it was really buggy when it came out. Yes, had a lot of promise, looked really good, a lot of eye candy. It's a lot of uh, disappointment when it came out. Exactly, and and for the fans, for the gamers, they don't want to see that, and, and the company doesn't too. I mean, <laughs> we're gamers first. I mean, it's you, you you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who works on games that's not a gamer themselves. Uh, and doesn't, Unless they're the ones financing it. it probably, right, those in management. Um, yeah. But generally, people grow up into those positions. Sure, yeah. But you get people, certainly within the C-Ring, that come from other companies that mm -hmm. aren't necessarily gamers. They're, they're more about the business aspect right. of it. And yes, you, you have to think 
about the the monetization of, of games. Maybe not down at the deck plates as a programmer, as an artist, as an animator um, who's ma making the content or implementing the content. But at some point, somebody does, right? I mean, this companies are in business to make money, right? Mm. And so decisions have to be made. And maybe the decision, I don't know that any of this is necessarily true, is that, hey, we're going to release it. We think it's ready. And, you know, maybe it, maybe it just flops. Maybe it's a hit. And that's, that's hard, right? It's been, it's after you spent all that time, all that effort, right. all that money, right. and then to release something that's not 100% and you're just kind of banking it that people yeah. will like it just enough to keep playing until we can fix this. Right. And, and like I said, as the, the folks who are actually doing the work, the programmers, the RSC animators, et cetera, uh, I, I think we all want to do our best to release the best product that we can. I think you taste good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, after all, why why are you doing this if you're not going to take pride in your work? You know, yeah. If you're just going to kind of be punching a time clock, come in and, and produce stuff. What's the point? I mean, most most of us are in love with what we do. I would say. Yeah. I mean, I probably. I probably work more than the 80 hours I bill. Yeah. Don't tell anyone that. <laughs> uh, but it, it's for the love of what we yeah. do. I mean, I am living my second dream uh, My for two of my passions, playing games, which I've been doing since I was a kid, and writing code, which I've also been doing since I was a kid. I mean, I started learning to program when I was 10 or 11. Wow. And so it's we do it just because it's it's our we're passionate. Right, about our work, um, and it's hard. You're you'd be hard pressed to find people who are not passionate about what they do. They maybe they're not very skilled, but they're still very passionate. I, you know, I'll take passion and determination and grit over right. skill because skills can be learned can learn over that, time. Yeah, for sure. yeah, I guess you can get somebody that's not really like into first-person shooters, but they got this degree in in development, and you have to find a work somehow. Because your student loans are coming in, you have to pay that off, and you find a job doing, you know, you're working on a hockey game. Some mm -hmm. of you have never watched hockey mm -hmm. in your life before. Right. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, at the end of the day, it's just not going to be done correctly. So yeah. I think it's it's good to have people that are passionate about first-person shooters that work on first-person yeah. shooters, you and, know. And to your point, you know, as I, as I was talking with mentors, figuring out about where I was going to find my entrance into the industry, they're like... There are lots of different engineering, just like there's lots of different art. Know what you want to do, and more importantly, know what you don't want to do. Right. You know, hey, Rob, we got a job for you as a database engineer. Hard pass. I don't want to do that. Um, hey, we got a job for you as a UI engineer. Okay, that's probably B tier for me. Oh, I could do that uh, if that gets you where you want to go in the end. Something that I realized in this transition was I needed to find a job, not the job. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, you'd be very lucky if you landed the job right off the bat. Um, doesn't always happen. It doesn't always very happen. Very rarely happens. I mean, and this is a great company. Uh, the, the project, sure, it's small. But you, you know what? Small beginnings are, are perfectly great. Yeah. You, you got to start somewhere. I nope. mean, when I, I think I t told you this. When I started my first YouTube channel, I was recording with an old iPhone. This is like three or four versions above it. Mm -hmm. And just about a year and a half ago, I was still using that old iPhone, recorded 120 plus videos on it, but 
done is better than being perfect in the beginning. That's right. Because perfection is going to come with time, right? Exactly. So, don't let don't let perfection be the enemy of good enough. Oh, come on. And so, yeah, I, you know, I'm starting off small. And who knows? It's going to take, I know it's going to take me a couple years before my skills are really at a level where I want them to be both hopefully in Unreal and in Unity because they're fairly universal. Now, are you working on... When you say Unreal, is it the latest version of Unreal, yep. or is it just like uh, no, I'm Unreal working. and then just like an umbrella for it? No, I'm working on Unreal 5. Okay. I've been working on Unreal 5 since the day I started. Uh, I started out with some courseware that was in version 4. Point whatever. Sure. Um, but you can still do the work in Unreal 5. How long would it be like, for example, you work in Unreal 5 now, right? Let's just say it takes 10 years to get the next Unreal out, let's just mm. say. I don't I have no idea. I'm yeah, just, me neither. So how long before, like how long does, uh, who makes that anyways? Who makes that? Un- so Epic Unreal? Games makes Unreal. Okay, so let's, uh, let's just say, how long would Epic Games be like, hey, we have this Unreal 6, you guys can start working on this? So in fact, we, when we started out, we were in like early access, Unreal 5 early access. And then there was a couple like, I think they call them previews. And Unreal the, 5 looks unreal, no pun intended, but yeah. it looks really awesome. And the client was like, look, we're gonna, we want this developed in Unreal 5. So we started out in early access. I think then we went to a preview. And there was some growing pains, some things that didn't quite work uh, right. And so there was a period of time when we were figuring out how to not port the code, but make it work when we went from these early, these sort of beta releases. Sure. Alpha, beta. Yeah, into the full-fledged Unreal, but now we're in, I think, 5.03, and things are humming along. You know, nothing's ever perfect, but right. uh, there, yeah, there was a period of time where we just had to test things out, and, and things got broke for a little bit, and that's okay. We eventually work it all out. You know, just give it a little bit of time. Right. So, anytime I think that they're releasing a, a major version like that, they're going to have these early release versions that developers can start working with. Heck, one of the technologies that I'm about to, to learn uh, and we're going to try to implement in the game is still experimental. Oh, wow. They say, yeah, you know, this is great for development. Don't recommend putting it in, in release versions, but who knows, maybe by the time we get through to our release, whenever that is, it'll have matured. Maybe it won't, sure. you know. And So if, if it matures... Then is that a lot of work to go back and kind of fine tune things to the? Not necessarily. I mean, generally it's iterative, mm-hmm. so it's not like, uh, hey, we went from beta to full release, and it's so drastically different that you're going to have to redo a lot of stuff. It's just because it's experimental, they're not entirely sure that it has all the functionality that they want it to to have or the function that it does have doesn't work quite the way they want it to have. And so it just takes time for that technology to mature till it produces the behavior that they intend it to, to have. Right. So, um, so I'm going to be working with one of those uh, that, our techni- that the technical animator uh, recommended. It looks really neat, um, having seen some, some, some of it demoed. Yeah. So I saw some... Um Early, early um, sc- screenshots of The Witcher. I think the brand new Witcher that they're working on on the, on the Unreal 5. And that looks amazing. Yeah. It looks really good. Uh, 
when people are working on like because I, I see it a lot like the next version is going to be implementing vr and ar into these games probably about 10 years from now a lot of it it's going to be starting to morph into more like ar do you agree with that or not everything is a good fit for vr and ar um i now have a vr kit for my playstation 4 and mm -hmm. and so there are some games that are a good fit for it and some games where you know it was purely a desktop or a or just a plain console game and they've ported it over to, to that, work in VR. That was going to be my last question. Is that the same technology, similar technology? Like I virtual? think it's similar technology. Uh, now, AR, augmented reality, or XR, extended reality, uh, is more like you're seeing a, your own HUD, right? right. Things overlaid. I, I can probably, to put it in perspective for folks who maybe have not played with it, is uh, the, the Pokemon Go craze mm -hmm. that happened mm -hmm. a number of years ago, right? And people are walking around with their smartphones oh, yeah. and they're finding these Pokemon caches or whatever they were going to yeah. collect Pokemon uh, kind of overlaid with the cameras seeing the real world, uh, you know, on the screen sure. of their phone. So that's what AR is like. And so, you know, I, I don't know, to be honest, uh, especially when it comes to AR. VR is probably a little more of a known. Because I know Facebook actually, well, Meta, Metaverse, now they're working on the glasses. Yeah. Um, the AR glasses yeah. to make things more, you know, mm -hmm. you can see people in front of you that perhaps mm -hmm. might be in their home, you know, mm -hmm. uh, work meetings. I, I think they're trying to develop it more towards social interactions than gaming, but I think yeah. the, the um, but I think the, the, the transition here, the natural progression would be to just go into games mm -hmm. to be able to do that. And right. I think that's really cool. I think there have been. You would have to have a lot of room for like, sports games or anything like that. Right. I mean, I think there have been some AR-related games out there. One comes to mind, but I can't remember the name of it. But, you know, the, the VR stuff that we have now is kind of where, when I went through grad school, part of my degree was virtual environments. The things we're able to do now is what we wish we could have done 20 years ago. Right. Uh, with it, you know, and and the HMDs, the head-mounting displays, and the, and the little controllers that you see are at a approachable price you know it's not like that's not the problem to cost right right it's not like it's a three to thousand five thousand dollar set we're talking okay it's six hundred eight hundred thousand dollars that's a little more affordable it's not cheap grant, right. granted but it brings it more within the range of something that people can buy yeah because i think what Zuc mark zuckenberg was talking about the glasses being like Upwards of almost a thousand grand, like thousand dollars. Nobody's gonna buy that. That's crazy. You know what I mean? Like, so they're trying to work on the technology to make it smaller, to mm -hmm. be able to fit on the glasses. Make it cheaper, right? So they're thinking entry price might be something like three hundred bucks or something like that. Yeah. But I mean, that's still expensive for a pair of glasses yeah. that you're gonna be using for gaming only, right? Or augmented reality. Yeah. I mean, the the PSVR set that I have, and I I bought mine used off eBay as well as my my PS4. I mean, probably retailed in the four to five hundred dollar range, and I I probably paid like two to fifty for it. Hmm. Um, on top of already spending, you know, sure. two to two fifty on the PlayStation on the itself, console, yeah. right? And then to buy all the you know the, the games that you want to play on top of it, but you know, hey, you're passionate about it, sure, yeah? Because I mean, you told me you have a crazy amount of games in a library. right? I have probably <laughs> over thirteen hundred games in my Steam <laughs> library. <laughs> I, it's like I'm a collector. I, I could probably play games till the day I die every day. And, and still probably not, and play, still them not finish, play them all. And some of them are maybe impulse buys, but 
the other thing as, as a gamer and as, and as a programmer is, I, I, my, and my tastes are wide and eclectic. I, I, there are some genres that I certainly don't play. I don't play really any sports games. I don't play any racing games, fighting games, but I, I play a lot of other stuff. You're like, oh, well, you're, you're, you're a dude. You're right into hardcore shooters. No, not necessarily. I like a lot of puzzlers. I remember telling you, like, uh, what is that, Portal? Oh, you like Portal? Uh, we, yeah, my daughter and I have been doing the co-op Portal 2 challenges. Uh, played the whole Mist series. I'm now playing Abduction by the same folks at Cyan with one daughter. She's really into, into those. Um, you know, I'll do point-and-click adventures. I like a lot RPGs. Sure. Really love uh, the open-world games. Just recently finished Horizon Zero Dawn. Oh, did you? With my, with my eldest. Loved right. it. I haven't, I haven't finished it. I think when it came out, I wanted to buy it. I had a friend that had it. He's like, dude, you need to buy this game. It's so good. It's so good. And I'm like, all right, all right. But I'm such a freaking FIFA nerd. Yeah. Like, I'm such a nerd when it comes to soccer games. And just because I grew up in Brazil, my right. dad played soccer. So mm -hmm. I just, you know, and, and I'm good at the game. So like, yeah. if you, wow. <laughs> and I'm good at the game. So I, I play it so much. Yeah. I think there was one year that I took one year off FIFA. I didn't play it at all. Yeah. I was playing something else. So I, yeah. got, I was able to catch up on a bunch of games. Right. Well, I was I, doing that too when I was working on uh, Warzone is I was playing a bunch of Call of Duty. And granted, I was able to get games that are reduced price from Activision Blizzard. And uh, I ended up playing a lot of Call of Duty Mobile. And, wow. and while it was fun and really accessible, especially since I could play with a PlayStation controller, it sucked up a lot of time. I've stayed up way too late on, on a lot of nights just playing this. And finally, I just I just backed out at the end of a season um, and said, you know what? I've been neglecting all these other games. I'm never going to get to them if I just keep playing this massively multiplayer That shooter. is the main reason why I stopped playing mobile games. They're so addicting. You're right. Mobile games are so addicting. You can be there for hours and you didn't do anything. Exactly. And I mean, although it's fun to play, and mm -hmm. like Candy Crush or um, what's that other? What's the 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 war game that you fight with like the little characters you can build up? Uh, Clash of Clans. Clash of Clans. Man, I was playing Clash of Clans. I was so addicted to that thing. Yeah. Spending money because you need to want to buy this, you want to buy that. Yeah. That's faster because you right. ask the yep. line. It's like. Mm -hmm. I just had to say stop. Yeah. I deleted everything and then never looked back. And I sh should probably do that with FIFA, but. <laughs> It's just well, like, and companies are counting on it. They got yeah. you hooked. Oh yeah, it's totally like a, like a like a dose of adrenaline. It's a dose of feel good, right? You know, when you can win a battle online after you worked right. so hard, right? This, you know what I mean? Yeah. Just, the same it is with FIFA, but I, I I think I like console gaming, computer gaming a little bit better because like your hands are kind of connected to the controller. You know, mm -hmm. you can do that with mobile mm -hmm. games nowadays, mm -hmm. especially shooters, Fortnite, Call mm -hmm. of Duty, mm -hmm. but those games that were made for mobile first, like Candy Crush, and yeah. I stopped playing those. I just yeah, they were they were a time sucker yeah. for sure. Sure, and, and you know I played prior to, to playing a bunch of Call of Duty. The only sort of massively multiplayer online that I had done was was Counter Strike. Oh yeah, you know, and you could spend you could spend an entire afternoon. It's like okay, five hours just went by, and wow, where did the day go? I skipped. Sorry, mom. I, I skipped class to play uh, <laughs> Counter Strike when I was in Brazil. Yeah. Like my friends and I, we would like leave school, and in Brazil you used to have these land houses, right? You just walk in. It's just mm -hmm. 
computers just lined up right. from the door all the way to the wall. You pay pay five bucks to play for an hour or something, whatever. Right. My friends and I would sit, you know, right next to each other, put headphones yep. on. Yep. And then if we see a group of other people playing too, it's like, hey, do you guys want to, you know, duel exactly. each other, whatever? Right. Man, Counter Strike was so much fun. It is. I can't believe Counter Strike is still huge. It is to this day. I yeah. Mean, world tournaments and like mm -hmm. millions of dollars invested mm -hmm. in it, and the graphics don't look that much different from the time that I used to mm -hmm. play. But the 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 core mechanics of the game, I think it's what keeps people hooked. Right. Because I guess they're they're pretty good. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, while they are fun, they are entertaining. They're definitely addicting. Personally, I like. Games are a story, right? They're trying to tell a story. And I want to see that story from the beginning to the end. Mm -hmm. I want to finish that story. I want to go on to another story. Yeah. And with things that, you know, like these massively multiplayer shooters, what have you, okay, it might have a little bit of a, a thread of a story that's going on in there. But let's face it, it's just hours and hours of people, oh, yeah. you know, battling each other They're or whatever. They're multiplayer. And it, it, it's like the story never ends. It, it's, it's like the movie, the never ending story, right? That's why people sometimes get so angry at these games, like when they're playing online. Mm -hmm. You know, you let's just say, it's like that one example that I was using earlier about the code, about taking that one faulty piece of code and just importing it into different games. And it's like, man, like four years, I've been playing this game and they still haven't fixed this one little thing. Right. And it's four years later, it's still here. Like people get so angry. Right. I mean, with reason, Yeah. but it's, I guess that's one of the things I was um, talking about earlier is like people that really get invested. Like for me, FIFA, I've been playing FIFA for, since 1998. I've been playing, and I've been playing soccer games since 1994. So, and then to put it into perspective, I was five when I started playing. So I've been playing, I'm 33 now. So mm -hmm. I've been playing games like that for so long that FIFA, or I guess EA Sports, they switched into what's called the Frostbite engine. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you heard of it. Yep, a sure few have. years ago, they had it on um, a battlefield. Yep, and I think they, they did. I think they decided to use uh, Frostbite for all of their games. Mm. So FIFA, the, I think since FIFA in like fifteen or sixteen, seventeen, something like that, they were built on the backbone of a engine that was made for first-person shooters. Mm -hmm. And the consensus online is that ever since they made that change, that jump the game has gotten worse mm. because they imported it something that was made for one particular genre into another genre mm -hmm. and it just didn't translate well. Yeah. And the first couple of years were okay and then for some reason it just kept getting worse and worse yeah. and worse and worse and worse. And, and that's what Unity and Unreal try to do is be universal enough that you can use it no matter the genre. Right. Whether it's 3D, whether it's top-down, whether it's 2D, whether it's mobile, whether it's console, is that you can use it for all that and you know some companies make a decision that okay we're not going to pay basically a subsidy or or a royalty to to use someone else's uh, available engine we're going to make our own and they they buy the maintenance cost right to keep the engine fresh and being able to work with the latest technologies and being able to be as universal as they want it to be and, and maybe it didn't have all the necessary functionality to do a sports game because it was so first-person shooter oriented i don't know that to, for right. certain but and i think ea just kind of 
keeps shoving frostbite because I think it might be proprietary. It might be it theirs. Is theirs. It is their frostbite. So that's, engine, they don't yeah. want to use somebody else's engine to build their own game. So they, they want to keep their own. And I think, and here I am like a sucker that I am, believing the company. Because like, when, you, when you're a gamer and you really like a game, you, like, you want to believe that they're Im- improving on everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, apparently they're having um, a new version of frostbite with a new version of the engine that they use to produce FIFA. So mm. it's because it's the last year that EA has a license to FIFA. Mm. So they want, I think they want to make sure they want to go out with a bang because the following year, FIFA is going to be called EA Sports FC. Mm. And the actual company FIFA, the entity FIFA that governs the entire body of soccer around the world, right. I think they're going to hire a company to make uh, their game like, like from, from the bottom up. Gotcha. And I think what they came out with the statement saying that, you know, we don't want to monopolize the, the sport. We want to make sure that different companies can, can tackle into this. Mm-hmm. So I think they're shopping around mm-hmm. for, sure. and I think the, the rumors are that 2K is coming out mm-hmm. on top because they have a long history with sports games. Yep, sure. Yeah. Um, I've been interested to see what 2K yeah. does with soccer because from my friends that play basketball games, they really enjoy the, um, yeah, the, the 2K, NBA, the 2K, 2K series. So, to me, the more competition, the better. Sure. Because it forces everybody to go up. They got up their game. Um, and I think it's good that the FIFA finally woke up because as much as I like the FIFA that EA makes, they've dropped the ball, man. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's because budget or, you know, crunch time. Yeah. And, you know, it just... I, it's hard to put yourself in the shoes of other people, especially if you don't know what they go through to be able to finish something like because I have no idea I'm not a gamer I mean I'm not a programmer mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just a gamer you know mm-hmm. I've been gaming all my life and I'm kind of in the generation that grew up with the more advanced gaming you know I went straight to PS1 you know I mean I had Nintendo 64 mm-hmm. Mario and stuff like that yeah. but I didn't really get invested into gaming until I got a PS1 yeah so uh, <laughs> that one snoring <laughs> but as a developer as a coder how do you feel about people taking the original version of the game as the creators, I guess, first envisioned it, quotation marks, very heavy quotation marks, mm-hmm. to playing a remastered or completely rebuilt version like 20, 30 years later? Do you think that only enhances the original or do you think that takes away from the original experience? Well, there's multiple aspects to a game, right? There's the visuals, there's the audio, and then there's the gameplay in rough categories. And so a lot of it gets focused on the visuals, the the remastering. And I've played plenty of games where where older games where I've gone back and picked up someone's mod that had higher resolution textures. And it, it just it, that's the eye candy. Final Fantasy, I was just playing the re, the remastered Final Fantasy Seven. Looks mm-hmm. great. Yeah. I mean I played in, in the end for me, it does come down to the quality of the gameplay. I played in a, a nineteen ninety uh, adventure game, o- o- sort of open world adventure game called Darklands that had a very thick manual to it, uh, a lot of lore based uh, in in that game, medieval Germany in the 14th or 15th century. I think I poured in about 175 hours into that game. At least that's what GOG logged for me. <laughs> but it was it was engaging. It was a lot of fun. Right. And but the visuals were atrocious. Yeah. Terrible. But, but it, 
That was but that doesn't matter if you're having 30 fun. Years ago, yeah. exactly. Um, and other games try to you know emulate those. It's where you get these these sort of pseudo genres like Souls like or right. Metroidvania like yeah, 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 yeah. or roguelike out of there, and or you learn mist like you learn the ones that you, that you enjoy, and then I'm like, hey, I want to, I want more of that. Yeah, for me, it's kind of like similar with music, right? Because I have an artist. I was like, oh man, I really like this artist. And then like, you know what? What was this guy listening to mm-hmm. growing up? Like, what was his inspirations? Because let me listen to that to see if it sparks something similar. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So sometimes I'll like, for example, we share a band that we both like, Alter Bridge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Miles Kennedy, um, he has his Guitar Heroes. And I went back to listen to the people that he grew up listening to. Yeah. And I'm like, holy crap. Like this is, I can hear elements of Miles' guitar playing from Jeff Buckley, which is a huge guitar player, yeah. uh, considered one of the one of the greatest of all time. And I never knew that, but now I'm really interested in listening to more Jeff Buckley because if Miles likes him, right, and I can hear similar elements, then right. chances are I'm really gonna like this guy too. Exactly. You know what I mean? So I, I guess it's kind of similar with with the gaming as well. Yeah, there's there's this journey of discovery of, of what do I like and I want more of it. So that, like, I, I fell in love uh, with Souls like games, so I I bought a whole bunch of those, uh, the Mist games. So I've got a whole bunch of Mist clones, uh, open world <laughs> uh, RPGs. I've got a whole bunch of those. Speaking of those, have you played Elden Ring yet? I have not played Elden Ring. I was mm-hmm. not going to pay, you know, sixty dollars for a right. video game. How do, how is that like when you as being a, a developer yourself and you're looking at games, you're like, yeah, let me buy this game, and then you click and it's like price tag, and you're like, nope, I'm going to wait a little bit longer. And we had a lot of folks in the studio. They're playing it. They're talking about it. No, I poured you know a hundred hours into this game, and they're like, oh, you don't want to miss this game. You want to be in part of the conversation. I don't really care if I'm part of the conversation, mm. but frankly. I, I will enjoy the game <laughs> at some point. I mean, I, I think I have all of the Souls series, Bloodborne, Sekiro. I just don't have Elden Ring. Mm. And then a whole bunch of clones, as it were. Is Elden Ring part of that family tree? Yep. It was developed oh, okay. by From Software. Oh, okay. Yep. So I, I'm i very interested in things that From Software right. uh, releases. Um, they obviously have a successful track. Yeah. Right and you, or you find a company like Sucker Punch. I played Infamous. because Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah, yeah, yeah. Review, and so... Yeah. Uh, anything that gets released uh, by them because I want to say I played one and two they were fun games so yeah I got Infamous 2 um, I got Second Son I got Ghost of Tsushima which is also by Sucker Punch oh you, you got it? I do have it I haven't played it yet but I'm super stoked yeah, I finally yeah. bought that I had, I had Sekiro but I also wanted uh, uh, Ghost of Tsushima Ghost of Tsushima is one that I haven't bought yet but I'm, I'm by now I, you know what I'm just going to wait till they put it up on the PlayStation Store it's been what a year and a half yeah, like two I years, I, right? I, I eventually got it for somewhere in the maybe $18, $20 range on eBay. Yeah, I think on this last Black Friday, they had the director's cut for like 50% off. Yeah. And I almost, almost pulled did. the trigger. Yeah. Almost. I usually wait for like 75% off sales, particularly like Steam or whatever, right. what have you. Or, uh, well, it used to be $5 and below, but yeah, maybe it's like six twenty five and below now. I don't know. Yeah. And and I've certainly. I'm just I'm a sucker. Long. Period for games like that, like feudal Japan and stuff like that. Absolutely, yeah. I have a, I have a lot. I, I like a lot of things. Japan. Yeah, Tom, Tom, have, Tom Cruise got me into it. Maybe Last Samurai. Yeah, 
Well, you know, I lived in Japan for a few years. Oh, that's right. And, yeah, I, and yeah. I had an interest in Japanese things uh, before then, and particularly the Sengoku Jidai uh, era of Japan. So I, I yeah. have I have all kinds of games from that genre. I've got the, both the Nio games. Uh, I've got I, heck, I, I have a I have an older. I mean, it's like it's got to be nineties, maybe late eighties. It's not real time strategy, but it, it is. Kind of this idea that you start off young in the ranks and you work your way up to right. eventually be the daimyo mm-hmm. and taking over all of Japan. That later would be, I wouldn't say perfected, but very well done in Total War Shogun, uh, which was the first of the Total War series, uh, which obviously has gone on to release a lot of, of various games. But anything that's like that, I have, I've got one that's called Sengo, just literally Sengoku Jidai. Um, and, and so... Yeah, I snatch. I'm a sucker for those. I snatch those up too because I I, I love the lore. Of yeah, so do I. I finished the whole series on Netflix. I just binge watched it. It was like about the history of. Oh yes, yeah, we I think I told you about that. Yeah, right? I, ha- I haven't watched it yet, but I, I was I, I had heard about it when I was listening to the uh, the Samurai podcast. You know, because it's just like one of those. Like, let me put this on for me to listen to while I get ready for like my bed routine, and then it just became like, okay, I can't just listen. I have to watch it. Because it's just so interesting, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So every night before going to bed, I watched one episode a night until mm-hmm. I finished it. And it, just, it was a great... I don't remember what it's called now. Yeah, it's it's uh, Age of Samurai or something like that. But it's a series on Netflix that yep. talks about the, the whole samurai thing. Yeah. In fact, I was listening to a couple podcasts from this uh, the Samurai Archives podcast. And they, were, they had some of the historians that were interviewed... Uh, for that particular oh, okay. series, and so they were, you know, kind of debating it and criticizing and, you know, what it did well, what it didn't do well. And let's face it; it's still it's it's visual drama, right? They need right. To, they need to up the drama a little bit, even if it's not yeah, entirely gotta, accurate, because it sells. Yeah, it's just that is what it is. So I want. I also wanted to talk to you about your career in the Navy for a little bit. Yeah. How many logged hours of flight do you have? A little over fourteen hundred. So my my the question that deviates is out of those fourteen hundred hours, we're not sponsored by Monster by the way. But if you guys want to sponsor me, go ahead. Uh, out of those fourteen hundred hours, how many of those hours have you seen something and you went, hmm, what is that? As far as like something that you can't explain. I don't know that I ever saw anything that I couldn't explain. I mean, I know there are people out there that, that have, but... Have you met somebody personally that said, hey, man, I was flying, and then I saw this, and I think I couldn't explain it? No, I don't think I have met uh, anyone personally. Hmm. I mean, there's been, I think maybe in my time in the Navy, there were some people that spotted something that was unexplained. Because right about the start, you say you joined in 2003? Uh, no, I joined in 1994. Okay, okay, so you had been on it for a little while now. Because I think it was in the mid two thousands, early mid two thousands, that famous story about Commander Favor, seeing they're they're doing a drill off the coast of California, they saw this thing rise out of the ocean, jumped up, you know, traveled several thousand feet within seconds, and it disappeared, and then jammed their radars and stuff like that. Have you have you heard of that story before? I don't think I have. Commander Favor, yeah, he's a he came out on a bunch of podcasts, some Joe Rogan's podcast, mm. and that's when it's really the story really picked up steam. Because he went on Rogan. Mm. And then also a few years ago, our government decided to start disclosing some information. Saying that, you know, they are out there. We just don't know what they are. You know, flying saucers out there. We can't identify them. We don't know who they are. 
we just they came out and said we know it's out there but we don't know who owns it if it's mm -hmm. of human origin or extraterrestrial origin we don't know we just mm -hmm. know that it's out there mm -hmm. so I, I was just curious if you had actually no no personal experience nobody that you ever knew no one that i that no not that i can recall i mean i know there's been reports you know and there might have been social media posts or, or news stories or whatever about a flight crew seeing something. I can vaguely remember something like that a number of year, years ago. And, and it might, I think, I want to say it was a military flight crew. I remember if it was Navy or if it was another service and seeing something in the sky while they're flying. Okay. It could be, could be a visual illusion. Sure. Guys playing tricks on you. Could be some new experimental flight vehicle we, we just simply don't know it's the unknown because the what some people are saying is like well maybe it might be even our own government with technology that we might not know about it yet that they're trying to work on the hush hush so mm -hmm. other countries might not right know that we possess that kind of technology right. so they themselves don't try but of course china's working on something russia's working on something korea's sure. working on something we are working on something Everybody's working on something to get yeah, ahead. Right, there. You know? everyone wants an edge, right? Everybody wants to, the, to win the race. What, um, what was like the most intense experience you ever had while flying? Hmm. That you're like, holy shit, if I make it through this. That's a good question, because someone described flying to me once as 99% boredom and 1% sheer terror. <laughs> There is a lot of boredom. Um, does it, like, when you fly in a, a plane, after a while, does it feel like driving a car? In a sense, but you you don't take the, any chances. You're always reading off checklists and doing things step by step. Right, because one little mistake in... Right, particularly when it comes to just safety of flight. Yeah. You know, being able to take off, land... Uh, survive if the aircraft has an emergency because it's not like you can just like pull off to the side of the road and right. fix the car. You're and you say you landed on carriers, right? Yeah. So there's out of all those times that you were landing on carriers, there wasn't like one time where it might have been a close call or anything like that, or you were just you were just that good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not a pilot. I'm, I'm a navigator, but. Well, when you sit in the back seat of the A6B Prowler, you can't see out the front. So, oh, okay. Uh, I mean, you have a few instruments like altimeter and airspeed and and, and uh, 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 attitude direct, direction indicator, something that tells you pitch rolling, y'all, that sort of thing. And and you're always trying to back up the folks in the front seat and making sure that hey, no one's asleep at the wheel. And nothing ever that just really super scared me I, I i in my first tour we were lined up to we, we were over in southwest asia um arabian gulf maybe we were maybe we were over maybe we were over the skies of kuwait or iraq and we were re refueling during a mission and we're lined up in place to to get gas off of what was probably an air force tanker of some kind and this plane comes up. We're on the left side because it was just how the standard was. And this plane comes up, and they're turning belly up to us, i.e. they cannot see us, trying to, I think, get in position in line. And it got pretty darn close. 
And almost to the point, I was like, we need to stuff the nose and and um, mm. make sure we don't get hit. And my pilot was like mad that I didn't, you know, react fast enough, tell them what to do. And, and I, to be fair, I mean, I was new, but, and to be also somewhat unfair to that other person, they were a bit of a jerk, <laughs> well known to be. Um, and they could have handled it better, but you know, everyone handles stress differently. But it, it, it wasn't like, I'm afraid I'm going to die mm. uh, kind of moment. I don't know that I ever had really any one of those. In fact, you know, even near-death experiences like that really didn't shake me. Um, did you do, I'm sorry to interrupt, did you, did you do time when uh, we went to war in the early 2000s? Did you go overseas? Yeah, so I've uh, I've done uh, several tours in uh, over Iraq. Never did Afghanistan. Um, Ninety eight, ninety nine, two thousand. We did not go, and it was back in late two thousand five to two thousand six. Also, oh, you went back post nine eleven. Yep, well, I sure did. And uh, if I remember correctly, that's what got Doctor George to. The join was 9 11. Oh, was it? I think so. Okay. So, and so during my second flying tour as a department head, uh, the captain of our carrier, who was a, he, he was also a prowler guy, we had missed each other literally by months in the squadron that I went to. Mm-hmm. So he had been to that squadron. And so I knew him by name, by reputation. And he was, to be honest, a little rusty. I mean, he's got big responsibilities as the captain of an aircraft carrier. Of course. But he wanted to fly. I respect that. And there's some people that, that, that just didn't want to fly with him because he could be a little scary. And they're like, uh, because I was an instructor um, for the, the aircraft systems and all that, you know, they're like, do you want to fly with him? I'm like, sure, it doesn't bother me. Never scared me uh, a minute in my life flying with mm-hmm. him. And, and I wasn't afraid to be like, hey, captain, you know, Watch the altitude. Mm. And I think we had a really good rapport as well. And so nothing that was ever really scary. Now, of course, every time you're taking a, a catapult shot or you're, or you're taking a trap landing uh, on the aircraft carrier, you, you are riding with your hands near the ejection handle <laughs> should something go horribly wrong sure. and you need to take a, a, you know, a rocket ride out of that yeah. aircraft, thankfully. Never had Never had a ride in a in a Martin Baker uh, ejection seat, so. That's good. I know people who have, people that, it, uh, a guy I went through flight school with, they're, uh, they lost a motor flying uh, a low level route in Washington state and they all had to jump out. They all survived, but he had back problems afterwards. Bad. Um, I A guy I know uh, was one of my junior officers when I was a department head, he was killed in a training uh, flight his uh his pilot probably overbanked or something and they didn't recover and they so both of them went all four of them or three of them that were in the aircraft that is you know it's dangerous business yeah you're gonna know people who have died most likely uh my first tour one of our s3s crashed into uh one of the i think it was the north island of the iwo jima chain i knew one of the guys on board Yeah. Um, actually, no, it was not my, it, it, it was my staff tour uh, after graduate school. I was on the Stennis. But um, 
and I didn't know him, know him. It wasn't somebody I went through fight school with, but I knew that person. I didn't know the other folks that were in the crew, but still, you knew somebody, and they crashed and died. It's that is the nature of the business if you're going to be in the military, and if you're not, if you can't live with the fact that people around you might die or you might die yourself, maybe that's not the business you need to be in. And I I get it. Everyone deals with stress and trauma and you know differently. Yeah. Um, it just never really affected me, quite frankly. Mm. Uh, and I never really had that near-death experience. I, I never got shot at. Uh, I know mm-hmm. people who did. Quite frankly, I wish they would have shot at me because I wanted to shoot back. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I didn't have to jam a lot of radars and anger, so sure. to speak. I mean, the Iraqis got pretty wise to, uh, if you start to mess with us, we're going to come over and, mm. <laughs> and mess you up. So they, they tended not to shoot at us a lot. <laughs> um like I said, I, I went in wanting to be a bombardier. I wanted to fly low, fast, and mean, and drop bombs on bad people. So yeah. So when so when you lose one of those aircrafts, how much of that is a is a blow to like financially speaking and operationally speaking? Uh, I can't really speak to the financial aspect of it, but I mean operationally, you'll you'll get a replacement from somewhere. And it'll be uh, quick, or you have to wait a little. Uh, you're probably going to have to wait, but I mean, if you were out doing a combat operation, the Enterprise is going to figure out how to get you an aircraft, probably from the training squadron back mm-hmm. at wherever, and get get a unit out to you. Because those cost a lot of money, millions and millions of dollars. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, there's an impact. It's like okay, we can't fly as many sorties now. And if you're in a squadron that has smaller number of planes, so in a prowler squadron you had either four or five airplanes, whereas in a Hornet or a Super Hornet squadron might have had a dozen. I don't mm. know exactly how many, but uh, there is certainly an impact um, for a time being. And you know, if you're like a prowler or, or uh, an E2, you're a one of a kind squadron on. on the carrier, whereas, well, of course, now we've got growlers, but you, know, you can't replace that with a super hornet because they don't have the jamming equipment. But mm. you know, th- there are ways to, to make up for it, and or there might be another air wing out there you're doing more than one carrier operator. There's there are ways to mitigate the risk, but mm. it'll be fiddled. I read, no, anyway, I watched a video on YouTube about this brand new system. Uh, teaching pilots, have you heard about that? They're, no. they're doing off of um, San Antonio Lackland, I believe. No, I don't think I um, It's a brand new system. I, I think it really expedites on how fast you can get somebody from training into flight experience to actual flying. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of that do you think the technology can advance to get you faster versus putting in your actual time, like, you know, and someone asked, was that was having a conversation with me about something very similar to the to that recently, and and as, as someone who thought, well, I'm going to take my aerospace engineering degree, I'm going to get my master's in computer science, and I'm going to go into flight simulation, and then I discovered a lot of other things that I was interested in. But I, you know, I believed in the value of simulation. It certainly costs less per hour than it does to fly a real aircraft. It's certainly a lot less dangerous, but it's. It only goes so far. It gets you familiarity, and it's great for practicing things to get them closer to having that muscle memory, but nothing's gonna replicate the 
chaos that life is going to bring yeah. to you when you're when you're up there. But the idea being is that we get you trained well enough that you know how to react to situations. We certainly need you to be able to, you know, operate the aircraft safely. You got to be able to start it up, shut it down, take it off, land it, deal with emergencies. And we do a lot of simulator work that is surrounded by emergencies. Uh, we, we call them EP, emergency procedure uh, simulators. And so the instructor who's doing your thing, uh, running the scenario, is just going to throw a bunch of different things at you. Mm. One, you got to be able to recognize the warning signs. You know, you need to make sure you're following the correct checklist that you can either recover the aircraft safely or if it's unrecoverable, get out, you know, save your life right. uh, to do it. So certainly the higher fidelity of simulation, it's not necessarily just the visuals, but the immersiveness of it. And, and part of the, part of the difficulty in making it as real as possible is that, I mean, let's face it, the flight environment is complex. There is, Dozens, hundreds of people involved in this. When you when you go fly, um, either the people that you're talking to on the radio, uh, the controlling stations, uh, what have you, the other aircraft in the sky, you just can't necessarily have all that in a training simulator. It, that's just very difficult to replicate that realistic environment um, to the extent that you're going to get you know, the training that you would hope or that you would get doing it, you know, in real life. It's it's not like we're going to be able to, to simulate the, the chaos that's probably um, L.A. Center <laughs> flying there in Southern California and have you be able to deal with that, with the number of aircraft, uh, the very congested uh, radio frequencies that you're talking on. And those are all, those are all learned skills. Mm. But anything that we can do to advance the amount or speed up the process again yeah, you speed up the process so that Safely. when you finally get strapped into an aircraft or buckle into an aircraft you know a little bit more than you used to well especially nowadays right isn't there like a major shortage in pilots i honestly don't know i mean i've been I out, think of, out of business for a while it ebbs and flows i think right now they're really looking like they're really trying to get pilots because i know uh, personally, friends, you know, trying to apply and, and trying to join, and they're like, "Pilot, pilot, 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 pilot." Yeah. Can you, do you want to fly? Can you yeah, fly? Yeah, you know. Yeah. And I was in a I was in a, a series of years um, where naval aviation was really short in the amount they needed and the amount they the inventory that they had, and if you wanted to stay in the navy and get promoted, you had to fog a mirror and. Not get in trouble, and we're going to promote you up to a certain point. Sure. Um, but it was easier to stay in and continue because we needed your services. But it's, you know, they, they have, it's feast or famine. It, it's a sine wave. It comes and it goes. Sometimes we got too many. Sometimes we don't have enough. Nobody mm. can predict what human beings are going to do. And, you know, are the airlines going to be drawing more people out or the, or the, yeah. just the culture of the Navy is going to, Drive think, people out or bring them in. I think the thing was um, during COVID and post COVID, a lot of people were retiring early because they were offered that mm -hmm. um, that option. You know, you can retire early right now, and we won't deduct anything. You get mm -hmm. to keep this and that, and mm -hmm. blah blah blah. And so, a lot of the older pilots were commercial airlines and private airlines. Like, all right, cool, I'm off to the sunset. Sit, yeah. you know, sip margaritas, whatever. Right. And they took off, and there was nobody to replace them. 
And then the people that got out of the Navy, you know, they joined or they left and then now they're short in the Navy. So it's, yeah, I, I hear a lot. I mean, it's, it, people at work now, they even come up to me like, do you want to be a pilot? <laughs> I was like, well, let's talk about that. But I mean, I, I don't know, man. I've always been like scared of flying. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, every industry at some point probably has endured a brain drain yeah. of human capital, of talent, for whatever reason. And we've got to figure out how to continue on or close up shop. And it's not like the government's going to close yeah. up shop. Uh, so we're going yeah. yeah. to figure out how we're going to meet the mission, you know, to serve and protect our country. Do you know it's about kind of an unrelated question to actually flying or maybe related I don't know uh, I heard that the taller you are the worse it is for you to be a pilot is that true to a certain extent I mean I'm all of 5'8 I don't have any problem fitting an aircraft it was sometimes a little bit hard to see over the dashboard of, of uh, the aircraft when I would have to run the seat all the way up to where my helmet was above the upper ejection handles but if you are too tall and, and they do they do measure you when you go through flight school you get a I forget what they call it. Uh, where they're literally measuring, like, okay, what is it from the back of here oh, to okay. here? Yeah. What's this like? How tall? What's your seating? Because they want to know what cockpits you'll fit in. Right. They want to fit you to certain and what you won't yeah. fit in. And so, to a certain extent, yeah, being too tall can uh, be a detriment because there are certain things you won't fit in. Walking around aircraft carriers, you're going to bump your head into more things if you're too tall. I didn't have that problem at my height. There was also the the pressure too, right? When you're taking off, I guess the taller you are, the I guess the worse the pressure would be in your in your joints and discs from the G force, or not really. Well, in, in an ejection seat, right? Maybe so, because you experience upwards of, of thirty Gs uh, during an ejection. But you know, if you don't fit comfortably in the ejection seat and you're having to be hunched over, I mean, I'm starting to feel back pain myself these days and, and I'm short but that's probably because I spent more time at a desk as a nerd you know as a yeah. keyboard not you know with good posture but sitting in very uncomfortable ejection seats for five six hours at a time certainly didn't help me any yeah that's true what are your plans now continue doing the the gaming until whenever I, I will probably work at the minimum so when my youngest, who's seven, will be eight in December, till she is off to college. Oh, okay. So another eleven-ish years or so, you know, because te technology. Speaking that in terms of technology, that is nothing, right? As far as how fast exponentially how it grows, you know, eleven years. Oh right, I mean, it, I, it's almost like the degrees I earned back in two thousand three could have been chiseled on stone tablets. Right, yeah. Because so much has changed. But I, I'm a quick learner. I'm a fast study. And, I mean, I'm brushing up. I'm taking courses on Udemy. I'm doing stuff on LinkedIn Learning. Where I, I know that the language, uh, first of all, Unreal and Unity both were new to me. But even the language C++ has changed a lot in over the years. And so I'm taking coursework in order to learn the, the new nifty things that you can do with the language that I didn't know how to do 20 years ago because I want to be as sharp as I can. I want to I be able to squeeze the most out of the language and, and be able to do the coolest things with it uh, and not be, you know, coding like a dinosaur. Do you, you say you're using LinkedIn Learning? 
Yeah. Is that a good resource? Do you feel like that's a... It is, and I've been able to use it as a premium member, as a veteran. I'm able to get to LinkedIn Learning. I've got, like my game collection, I've got way too many courses saved. But I in the... That's good. When I started out, I wasn't sure. And so, in fact, I was actually doing some, some spring cleaning in there yesterday. Uh-huh. Uh, like, okay, I don't need those courses or, in fact, I think I deleted all the Unreal courses because I'm getting enough of those elsewhere. And there's some, there was some, there's even stuff, there's stuff for down the road, like, okay, I want to learn a little Python, I want to learn a little Go, I want to go back and brush up on my Java skills. Um, Why? Why not? You know? Would you, okay, guess two parts. What are the, the main resources that you think are really helpful for somebody that's just starting out, they want to learn this thing, mm-hmm. and and to piggyback off of that, do you think that learning code, you know, things like Python and whatnot, is a skill that everyone should learn because of the tendency of our you know society to just become more and more and more technology technologically advanced, mm-hmm. meaning everybody should probably one day sooner or later, um, you know, dive into it. I don't know that everybody needs to. It's because it is not for everybody. There are people like I, I just couldn't code. I couldn't be an artist. I'm not a very good artist. <laughs> My art's music, but and I don't. So I don't think everyone should necessarily have to learn a language. It's not a bad idea. Just like not a bad idea to learn a foreign language. I mean, sure. I'm still studying Japanese. I don't have to. I could completely. Sell off all my books and say, you know what, I'm too old for this, but I, I enjoy it mm. uh, a lot. I, and so what resources are out there? Uh, there's, I think there's one called like Free Code Camp or something like that. And there's lots of good stuff on there. I, I may have the address wrong. Um of course, free the, code camp. I think it's I think it's something like that. Free code camp. I'll have to look it up and, and send it to you. Um, and there are probably other similar ones that I've bookmarked because I was I was doing the very same thing. I'm like, I need to brush up on my skills. Where can I find places? Now, I, the courses I'm doing on Udemy, I'm, I paid for those. Of course, I buy everything on sale at Udemy. <laughs> I'm not paying ninety dollars for a course when I can. You know, wait another two days because they're going to have yet another sale. They're always having sales. Have you ever tried to like look for a course like that and it's like go to YouTube to see if there's something that's like very similar? Yeah. There's so many things now nowadays and you can literally learn anything you want. Th- this is very true. You know, I didn't, but you know, like I was cleaning out my LinkedIn learning courses and I got, I'm like, I had some art related stuff in my Unreal uh, mm. folder or whatever. And I'm like, Realistically, I had to be, you know, I'm not going to need to learn that sort of stuff. If I ever have some spare time, sure. But I need to focus on kind of the here and now. But uh, So, yeah, Udemy was paid for. I uh, had some courses. Uh, you know, there's Simple to Learn out there. I'm, I'm doing a course uh, on there that I got through my Hiring Our Heroes uh, fellowship. Hmm. And... Uh, there, there are several. I want to say there's one other, which the name is escaping me at the moment. And they have like these micro d- degrees. Yeah, you got to pay for it, but okay. They're attainable. So, they're doable. Yeah. So what? Um, if, if it's a skill you want to get, right? If you why want not? To learn, right. Uh, there's nothing wrong with with that. 
you know, everything doesn't have to be free. But I, I guess somebody wants to guess just figure it out. Probably the best idea just to go like YouTube, watch a few videos, well, try to take a few courses. Oh, and and in fact, I've started following a couple particular folks for Unreal because I really liked the demos they gave mm. on how to do certain things. I mean, uh, Unity's got a really great learning platform. Uh, I did like their sort of intro to Unity, and then they've got I think it's uh, something called a junior programmer or something or other. Uh, and that's actually a, a professional development goal of mine is to finish th that whole course where you learn the engine and you build your own project alongside of the stuff that you're learning, which is super neat. Uh, Unreal, uh, they have their own learning courses. I don't think it's as well organized as the Unity one. At least, at least that was my impression of it. Um, but the courses that I've been taking on uh, Unity, a bunch of them is from GameDev.tv, and, and they're very high quality. I'm learning a lot of retainable skills. Plus, mm. I keep all my project work. But uh, so there, there's something for everybody out there. Um, like the stuff that's, I think a lot of the things that were on like Free Code Camp was not gaming related. Mm. But okay, you're going to learn uh, front end or back end development, which is a whole. I guess it's helpful to know maybe a little bit about everything, right? Especially when it comes to coding and, and game development. Yeah, and it kind of helps you understand too what other people are thinking when they're working. Yeah, and there's things that I want to uh, learn, like Go, like Python, like maybe some front end stuff, maybe some back end stuff, for to become. Not that I really want to be a full stack developer, but anything that I can do to be a better programmer in general. Maybe it's learning another language, maybe it's just expanding my knowledge base of of what's inside C++. I might be able to use that somewhere else. And the more skills you have, the more marketable you are. That's true, yeah. You have, there's a downturn, you get let go. Sure. And folks have told me this in my journey, it's like, look, if you're a programmer, you're never gonna go without work. You may lose your job, you know, Eight o'clock in the morning by noon, you're going to be, you know, awash with with job offers. <laughs> everyone needs yeah. programmers, and not everybody yeah. can do it, and not everybody likes doing it. I love it. It's, I'm a freak like that, I guess. <laughs> you, you heard the man. If you need it, you know, might be able to approach him with a, you know, an offer that he he can't refuse. I, I get offers all the time on LinkedIn. He's like, hey, we want you to c come over and you know be a programmer for this, programmer for that. You know, not a lot of game offers, mind you, but. Um, hey, we're needing a software developer for this, and I just didn't want to be any random software developer. I mean, right. I could if I needed to, survival mode, so to speak, but... Right, like you said, something happens, you let go, you got to find something quick, at least you, there is something out there. Right, but, I, heck, I, I was able to learn a lot in Unreal Engine. If I lost my job tomorrow, I could go learn something else. Right. You know, but you got to have a company that's willing to, to give you a chance to... to Train as you go. It depends on how much they, they want your talent. There's, a, I mean, honestly, I think I got hired for a lot of the intangibles that I brought from my years of experience. Right. Uh, and, and and my former boss who hired me saw a lot of potential in me as a as a software engineer. Sure, I didn't speak a lot of Unreal or a lot of Unity, but that's a skill that can be taught. Right. You get in there. Exactly. It's coming. It will come with time. You know, and someone. One of my mentors told me that yeah, about two wing, two, two years in, you'll get your digital wings, so to speak. He was another sure. aviator like me. 
uh, you, you will have... At least that's, a, that's a, it's a, a way to communicate that really speaks to you. Yeah, you'll come into your own and, and you'll be a lot more marketable. Yeah. Uh, you certainly still need to you know, have a network, stay connected with people sure. and all that sort of... And I've, I'm having some of that opportunity now having crossed over you know, to this side is helping those who are still in trying to follow my footsteps. Right. I uh, helped a gal, uh, mentored her, uh, connected her with folks, my mentors, and she's now in an internship with a game company as a designer. That's awesome. And I'm trying to connect a, a couple others. Um, I've got a, a, a couple that I have uh, put in as referrals for jobs. Uh, one who's an, uh, Dr. George's daughter. Mm. Um, who's an artist yep. and animator, been trying to, to help uh, get her in. Yeah. Uh, the, came to find out the position that I had I had her apply for. The company decided they were no longer hiring. So I'm still looking. Mm. Sure. Um, uh, a kid that I met, his mom worked at our fleet and family, um, and he got a degree in programming and game development. I just had him apply to one of the jobs at my company. And... So that process is coming along, and, and they certainly want, they, companies really do take personal referrals seriously, Seriously, yeah. I think. I mean, if you're vouching for somebody, and you're saying, yeah, they're good, or, you know, I trust them. It's not some bum that just walked off the street, right. says that, you know, they code. I, they're going to they're gonna see that they get a shot. There's no guarantees. Nothing in life is guaranteed. Right. But... Giving giving them a chance, so and I want you know I want them to see I want to see them succeed because I was given a chance. Someone took a chance on me. Said, "Okay, yeah, you hadn't coded in nearly twenty years, but we see potential in you, All right? Uh, and let's give you a shot. It's working out pretty good so far. You know, I didn't hire on with the company that I did my internship with. It just didn't work out for whatever reason. But I found a job. Yep." Will I stay with this company for the next 12 years? I don't know, to be honest. Maybe I get on some really cool gigs, working on some really awesome games, yep. and I just stick around. Or maybe I do get that offer that I can't refuse, and I'm like, I would love to go work on that Whatever. or that kind of game. Although yeah. someone did you know, tell me, like, maybe you don't want to work on your favorite game because then it might just ruin the experience for you. That is true as well. Maybe go work on, like, your B tier. <laughs> right, right, right. If your passion is, like, for me, my passion is FIFA, but my second passion is, like, RPGs, but maybe go work on RPGs. Right, exactly. Yeah. Pick, pick something that you're still interested in, but if somehow the job experience sours that experience, right. it doesn't ruin for, it for you in general. But experience. I don't know. I don't know that it's going to really ruin it uh, for me. At least <laughs> it hasn't so far. I mean, there's, there is some frustration, but it's only sure. when I can't figure out how to solve a problem or the code is, the engine's not doing what I expect it to, or the documentation says it's going to do one thing, and then, well, Doesn't come to find matter. out it does something entirely different, and you're like, well, that's nice to know. I think it's that, that speaks more about your gears of like having to problem solve for a lot of people, too, for, in your position that you had, right. you know, that, that kind of carries over. Um, do you ha do you have anything you want to plug in? Any any pages, um, like your company that you work for? Any sort of games that are out there uh, that people can go check out? Um, any social media stuff that you want people to follow? Anything like that? Oh, I don't have anything that anybody can follow yet. Although I, I have had people tell me that, well, maybe you should do one of those uh, let's play type of channels. They mm -hmm. they find my 
they found my sense of humor funny. They're like, oh, people, people would get a kick out of this 50-year-old guy, you mm-hmm. know, that's talking about, let's play Elden Ring or whatever. Yeah. I don't have anything quite like that just yet. Uh, my social media presence is pretty limited. <laughs> LinkedIn. I have a Twitter. I have a Twitter account only really as a consumer. I don't really tweet much. Mm. Um, but I do work for a company called GameSim. Uh, they are part of Keyword Studios. And I, I was actually talking with a mentor of mine who said a lot of companies contract work from Keyword Studios. So they are their fingers in are in a lot of games, and they have a really good reputation. That was really good to hear. That okay, you know, people. People trust Keyword Studios and, and the stuff that they produce, whether it's art, animation, QA, localization, sound, you name it. it like I said, we've got 10,000 employees worldwide, and most of it's you know international. So you know, there's a lot of goodness to be, to be had there. Um, so game, gaming field, developing field, definitely promising. I think so. Uh, it, it's not for everybody. And, and game development is comprises a a lot of different fields i mean there's the art and animation side of things there's the engineering side of thing there's design there's production which is more sort of managing stuff which i didn't want to do and then even within those there's specializations and someone told me you know know what kind you want to do like i want to do gameplay i want to do probably some ai because my graduate work was related it was in an ai related Mm -hmm. field Sound is kind of a third area of interest for me as, as someone who loves music. Um, but there are certain things that I really don't want to do. You know, I don't mind, like, say, doing uh, user interface stuff, but it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't really drive me. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so, but it's okay work. Um, it's it's fun overall. Um, I said uh, no release titles yet uh, for this project. Uh, the company, my client's called Consortium Nine. Uh, they do have a web presence out there. I think they have uh, a, a world they're trying to build called Tor, T-O-R. Mm-hmm. don't know a lot about it. Um, it sounds very intriguing. Uh, they're say, they certainly say that the right, you know, they're, they are here for the players. They want to make play fair, fun, have consequences for your actions. You know, you take risks and you lose. Well, that's, that's what happens. Part of life. <laughs> that's, you know, they want to make it real. I respect that. Uh, I, I'm excited for where this project is going, and you know, I, ho- I hope it turns into something really cool and people enjoy playing it one day. I mean, that's what I want to do. That's what I, I, I tell folks I have fun making fun for others, and to make something someday that people are like, that game really rocks. I really enjoy it. It just that's the satisfaction I want to yeah. get out of this is that people are enjoying the things that we're we're, we're playing or that we're making, um, because if they're not having fun doing it, well, then you're not making a very good right. game. <laughs> and if it's not for you, fun for you making it, why are you doing it? Go do something right. that is fun. Uh, and but I do enjoy I do enjoy it. Uh, and as a you know an avid gamer, I want to build things that people are going to enjoy playing that I would, and to see that they get some satisfaction out of that. And they're like, I want more. Eventually, want to work at a studio, um, you know, where it's it's like a from software or a sucker punch, where it's like, or it's like that art artist, like you know, I love everything you know that the uh, Miles has produced. So now I'm gonna, I want more of that, more of that. So you want to give them something that is so enjoyable, they're like, 
when's the next release? When's the next album if you're an artist? When's your next game? What's it gonna be? We'll, we'll talk about that here in a second because yeah. we'll, we'll get off topic, but Ultra Bridge is a new song and I think it's one of their best newer songs they have ever released. I haven't, I haven't, it's, it's like, it's that good. Yeah, I haven't it's, pre-ordered the album yet. It's but, that good. Okay. Anyways, dude, I appreciate you coming over here oh, and my talking pleasure. to me. We gotta do this again because there's so much that I wanna talk about that we can talk about because just like whenever you used to meet at the base, we can talk forever and get nothing done. So. Exactly. <laughs> so thank you for coming. Thank you for uh, thank you, sharing your experiences, your knowledge. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, it, was, it was really helpful. And I hope everybody watching at home um, could you know learn something from this. Absolutely. Yeah, and if there's anything I can eventually tell folks that's going to help them, inspire them uh, to get into this field, or they want to reach out to me and say, hey, I'm interested. Can, can we have some, some Zoom time? I'm more than happy to do that. Uh, I love talking to people about what I do uh, and guiding them, giving you know, pointing them in the right direction because others did that for me. Right. And it got me, got my foot in the door. And everyone should have that kind of chance. There you go. You heard the man. All right, Rob. Thanks, man. Appreciate All right, thank you. Thank you. Here, here, here. Thank you guys for watching. See you later. All right. See y'all.